Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for March 2012. I am writer, hyphen, critic, hyphen, recently unemployed, Mark Fennell impersonated now that he's all buffed up and put me out of a job, Lee Zachariah. And with me as always is... Hi, I'm uh, writer without a book, hyphen, director without a show, hyphen, um, that movie hack, Paul Anthony Nelson... (laughs) And keeping the branding going, our special, uh, that special guest this month is... Hi, I'm Mark Fennell. I'm that hyphen movie hyphen guy, (laughs) hyphen book writer, hyphen uh, occasional technology commentator, hyphen here now without... I've had two and a half hours sleep, so this may be terrible as a podcast. I apologise in advance. Can I tell you, I was secretly hoping earlier today that you would hyphen that movie cut. <laughs> I literally just did it on the spot then, so I think we're, on, we're in sync. We're, we're off to a good start. Yeah. yeah. Seriously, if, a, if I was a lazy headline writer, a dangerous method, if I was writing an article about it, I'd call it Let's Talk About Sex, because that's the, always the, the go-to headline they use. But it's really kind of apt here, because... For all the you know, all of David Cronenberg's films, which are about sex and feature sex, it, this is the one film where it's just people talking about it. Yeah, and that's partially my problem with it. Like, I think, okay, I think it starts off really well. I think um, you've got amazing performances from uh, Michael Fassbender as as Carl Jung and Viggo Mortensen, or more accurately, Viggo Mortensen's beard as Sigmund <laughs> Freud, uh, and also Kira Knightley uh, as as the, this kind of woman that binds them together. I think the performances are amazing. It starts off really phenomenally. You've got these great scenes uh, where they're kind of interact interacting, and then it kind of just devolves into a movie about people talking about their feelings. And I found it really... Like, I, I think it's entirely because it's David Cronenberg, right? And mm. David Cronenberg's made this, you know, in, early in his career, this career of, you know, making really interesting films where he takes internal anguish and finds a way of externalising it on film. So, you know, like The Brood and Videodrome and all those movies where he's looking at really interesting ways of taking, like, the horror genre and using it to kind of look at psychological areas. Mm. Whereas in this film... It's just he just gets people to talk about their feelings. It's just like anybody could have made this film. You're freaking Cronenberg. <laughs> Do something interesting with it. And at the end, I, I, I felt like the movie was, for lack of a better term, a bit repressed. Although, I, I mean, I haven't seen the film, but it seems apt um, that a film about the birth of modern psychoanalysis is... A uh, film where people talk yeah. about their feelings. Yeah, no, that, That's that is true. true. But for me, it was like somebody had sat down and written an essay exploring... Cronenberg's films and then thought hey let's make a film out of this and get Cronenberg to direct it (laughs) so it's kind of like it's very sort of uh, it feels like him looking back at the themes that interest him rather than the types of films that interest him look I'm not saying it's a bad film at all Mm. I just don't think um, I just think I would have preferred somebody else somebody less talented to have made that film and for him to have just gone, right, let's have sex, flesh, guns and, you know, inner anguish externalised in bizarre, strange, fleshy, messy kind of ways. Speaking of messy. Woo! The Raid. Uh, Amazing segue. It's, it's, well... (laughs) When you say amazing segue, do you in fact mean no segue at all? He never means it. (laughs) Okay. You should see how he talks to me. I haven't seen The Raid, but I've just been surrounded by people telling me, have you seen The Raid? Have you seen The Raid? And they all look like they've just done many, many, many lines of cocaine because I get the impression that's the effect it has on people. A little bit. I have to admit, um, and and you mentioned this earlier, that The Raid does have truly the best tagline of, I think, any film of recent years. Yeah, uh, Mad Men outdid themselves. It's just this poster that says, one minute of romance, 100 minutes of (laughs) carnage. (laughs) 
It's it so is true. A perfect, perfect tagline. <laughs> and it's literally it. Like when the film opens, we meet the lead cop played by um, Iko Uwais, I believe. I don't know if the pronunciation's right. Um, probably not. Very angry Indonesians listening to you right now. Probably, yeah. <laughs> Huge to. Indonesian. We've seen listen. what angry Indonesians can do. <laughs> yeah. But we meet him at the start with he's leaving in the morning, um, leaving his house, says goodbye to his pregnant wife. That's kind of the minute of, the minute of romance. And then after that, we're in a van with 20 SWAT cops and the game begins. And it's, it's one of those films where you kind of like, remember Ong Bak had all that plot Let's just get rid of that. And, <laughs> and you know, there's, there's too much emoting going on in John Woo films. What's with the doves? Just get rid of that. And Jackie Chan films, they have way too much jokes. Let's just forget about that. Just cut to the fight scenes. All these things really weigh down a film. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And The Raid is not interested in any of that. Yet, I think The Raid really succeeds because it, it, it adheres to that the screenwriting maxim that action is character. And in the end, everything the characters do, the way they fight, the way they go into a situation, the way they back out of a situation, the way they assess a situation, even though we're not having these you know, deep and meaningful dialogue moments, they all express their, what kind of character this person is. This is true. Therefore, our lead is extremely relatable and likeable, and we're right with him. Because, I mean, in the end, I mean, you can throw all the fight scenes you want at people, and this film has some of the most stunning choreography I've seen in a martial arts film in years and just phenomenal physicality. But you, it wouldn't mean a damn thing without it connect some kind of connection to the character and you absolutely get it. And I think that's the Raid's kind of stealth yeah. bomb, you know. I, I, I think it, it really hooks you in. I have a, I have a reputation, uh, perhaps a little unfair amongst Paul and some of my other friends, of <laughs> not liking action films that much. I took one of those friends to go see it and at the end he turned to me and he went, did you... You really didn't like that, did you? And I said, you know what? If all action films were that good, I would be the biggest fan in the world. If they were all that full-on and unapologetic and well-executed in every sense of the word, I would, yeah, I'd be totally on board. So this is how you do it. This is how you do action films. And it's such a, it's, it cost 1.1 million US dollars to make. It's extraordinary. Which blows my mind. It's like, we could make that here. I mean, we don't No, have we have such... health and safety regulations. Yeah, that's... <laughs> There's a film I did not enjoy at all. But I want to go back and see it again with an audience and not watch the screen. I want to watch the audience and take notes so I know which bits are supposed to be funny. <laughs> and that film was 21 Jump Street. Oh, oh really? You really didn't like 21 no, Jump I did, Street? No, I didn't hate it. Um, I laughed two or three times, which is more than I usually do in this sort of style yeah, yeah. of film. Uh, look, I had a great deal of fun with this film and I'm really not into most modern comedies. I just, I think... I like the fact that the, the attack they took, took was closer to Hot Fuzz than something like, you know, The Other Guys or... Mm. You, um, Certainly more or The Hangover. Other guys, yeah. mm. I, I have to admit, I, it's, in, it's a super juvenile film, but I feel I, one of the things I really enjoyed about it was they own how juvenile it is. Yeah. They really kind of take that to the nth degree. And I, I really think Tatum is kind of interesting at the moment because I feel like Channing Tatum... He really recognises that he's he's playing off this perception of him as a big dumb jock. Yeah, and he's I think he got great material out of that in this film. There's some really funny bits of him uh, playing off that perception of you walking into the cinema as, as yeah. well. I, I enjoyed a lot of that stuff. I, okay. I've got to say, I I really like his comic timing. I think he's great kind of timing. found yeah. his niche. Like I I'm not sure if he's found his dramatic niche yet, but in comedy, hey, hey, it's... Hey. the vow is modern classic. <laughs> Oh, Nicholas Sparks, how many ideas can you possibly have? The answer is one. No, look, 
Tatum <laughs> I is... I didn't hate the bow. I don't know why I'm knocking it. I didn't hate it. I had to hand back my penis at the door, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I don't think you can hate it at all. Well, Channing Tatum, I, I've, I've kind of got to start cutting him some slack. Yes, you do. Because my favourite director is now using him all the time. <laughs> uh, Haywire, he was in. This this totally play, plays into what I love, because my favourite Soderbergh film, and one of my favourite films of all time, is The Limey, which was written by Lem Dobbs, and as, as is this one. And they're both kind of 70s pastiches mm. in a way. And it's got an amazing cast, and the action is fun, and it's it's just... Even though it does that thing, it has sort of a weird flashbacky structure that usually really gets on my nerves. Uh, I still ah, so you've seen it. The Lorax too? <laughs> no, but I saw your review of it this morning <laughs> on TV and, I, and was kind of glad I hadn't seen it. Don't. Don't yeah. say it. <laughs> I enjoyed the hell out of this film. The thing that surprised me with Haywire is it's so modest. Again, it seems like a film you could make in Australia, like yeah. except for the except for the global locations. Everything else, like there's no huge effects, there's no explosions, there's no. The fights all seemed very realistic. Like people weren't, you know, bloodied beyond belief. It's it's all this kind of very, very kind of down and dirty type stuff. The yeah, the scale is just is is just really low-fi and very 1970s, as you say, and the. Uh, Awesome score by David Holmes completely seals that as well. Mm, yeah. Um, the score I can imagine driving moodily to. Mm. It's it's very cool. Um, and Gina Carano is great. You know, he She's doesn't fantastic. ask too much of her. He, he basically keeps her within her wheelhouse mm. of... But, you know, she's completely convincing and hot and a little charismatic and, yeah, she works really well. But, yeah, uh, Soderbergh, Hunger Games, second unit. I don't know how much he did, but... It's a cool trivia thing. Yeah. It you... was it apparently the scenes with the riot in District Eleven. Oh, okay. Ah. Were the second unit scenes directed by Soderbergh. They were really well second unitly directed. Mm. <laughs> no, look, I really liked the film and I haven't read the book. Um, but uh, I mean you they borrowed some dystopian elements from other places and that's fine because they do it well. But um what I really I mean the shaky cam is good. But way overused. Yeah. I think I'm sort of on the fence with that I've one. I've got to say, the shaky cam didn't bother me. And in yeah, fact, well, you went on just row a... three like me. <laughs> yeah. So... Just a Clearly few places. Not. Just a few places where and I was just like, and I thought down the shaky cam use in the violence, I thought, was particularly strategic. Yes, that... because yes. You, oh, I was, I was, no, you, you, you don't see the gore, but yeah. you see their faces. And so you get all the emotional impact without getting stuck in a ratings disaster, yeah. a ratings problem that they would have had. And great sound effects yep. as yeah. well. Totally agree. Sound Because that's something really tricky. To try yeah. and get that rating and and still make those scenes jarring to the audience. I was wondering how they were even going to sell that. I mean, it's mm. a teen movie with where the central premise is kill one another. Mm. But um, do you still get the the overwhelming sense of the horrific brutality of it, particularly yeah. that moment when they uh, they they land in the arena. Oh yeah, and and, and they kind of warn you, you know, Woody Harrelson, who by the way. Can we all agree? Wearing Owen Wilson's hair, um, he, you know, he warns them it's going to be a bloodbath, and you don't really process it till that point, and then it happens, mm. and they've executed it so wonderfully. You just get this wave of horror. Mm. But then you think about going, I didn't actually see anything horrific. And and look, I mean, it's obviously it's a Lionsgate film. It's not a mega budget sort of film, and that in some of the sort of grand capital sequences that does come into relief a bit. You, its budget sort of does show, like, <laughs> to be a little lacking. But I've got to say, you know, it does its best. I love the capital scenes. So the, the capital scenes, are, it's the design of the capitals where I really loved it. It was kind of like somebody had given a bunch of Japanese schoolgirls a lot of red cordial and some fluoro <laughs> glitter pens and said, here, design the future. Two big films from this month that we should get to. The first is Wrath of the Titans, 
the sequel to Clash of the Titans. Titans will wrath or wrath. <laughs> they wrath. Rather... It should be wrath. We learn yeah. nothing from Khan. I well, I was I really... hoping they would if, if Tim Roth was there battling them. I really <laughs> wanted that the to Titans. happen. Roth. Yeah, the the Sydney screenings is, is actually tonight, uh, so that's my excuse for not having seen oh, this right. yet. Oh, ah. sorry, we're keeping you from it. Yeah, you are. Bastards. Probably um, doing you a civic service, yeah, I really. Say, um, although I have to admit, I, I interviewed Sam Worthington a couple of months ago, and one of the things I do really like about Sam Worthington is he's abundantly honest in interviews. And he just kind of said, Look, I'll be honest with you, we screwed up Clash of the Titans. We absolutely messed it up, and we're hoping to deliver you a better experience for the second one. And I was like, Good on you for, for giving, for at least being honest with you. Lee, did he succeed? Well, in a way, because their plan was. He said, hey, we screwed up Clash of the Titans, let's fix it. And the way they fixed it was by making a worse film that would make Clash of the Titans look better by comparison. Genius. He is a diabolical genius. I'm, I'm still wrapping my head around that sentence. <laughs> it totally works. No, look, I didn't mind Clash. It was, it was camp and it was kind of... There was a vague spirit of, of you know, the old, you know, Harryhausen yeah, swords definitely. and sandals, mm. you know, that sort of carried through. The sequel does not have that at all. You know, it's it's. I don't even know what it's trying to be. Um, is really, because I, I sort of felt it was a mega. I mean, I think one thing this film does nail is scale. It looks enormously expensive, which is all those sort of sword and sandal films. The best of them do that, have that mm. epic feel. Um, it doesn't feel like it was, it, although it's CGI wall to wall, there's something about it that does feel a little tactile. Most of it doesn't feel so much created in a, in a computer except well, for some of the creatures. Well, that's a real step up from the first film. The first mm. film, I mean, uh, not helped by the 3D, which was that terrible, like, worst post conversion 3D I've ever seen. Well, this isn't great it either. Look, it looked like a pop up book. You know, that when they do it badly, like yeah. Viewmaster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's got that kind of grainy, flat. Yeah. Into, what is that? How, how badly can they screw this? shit up I mean all I want to know is is there another scene where Liam Mason goes release the Kraken is uh, they make a joke about it do they no, no, seriously the oh, humor good thing on them then oh, <laughs> trying to watch what they what they think is this is great relationship between uh, uh, Perseus and his cousin where they're try, obviously trying to go for some sort of buddy comedy Luke and Han thing the humor does not work at all it's Sam Worthington has never demonstrated a gift for comedic timing. I, and I, no, I don't think he's a bad actor, but I, I, that is not yeah. a thing that he possesses. I, and it's pretty embarrassing. Nor does he seem to have a talent for accents because this, <laughs> oh my God, he no. just does away with it and just speaks like, I, I came out of the film wondering which football club, which AFL club uh, Perseus played for. Can I tell you, I've, uh, I never realised how silly we sounded until last night. When we saw the film, <laughs> like I never realised how ridiculous the Australian accent is until I heard it in a that movie. I'm pretty sure at one point he says fire. Yeah, <laughs> you got to get away from his cleansing fire. Like literally. <laughs> Can I tell you? In theory, the argument is, and this argument works in theory, is that uh, none of them are English either. They're yeah. all ancient Greeks. They shouldn't speak with English accents or American accents. Yeah, so anything is therefore fine. It doesn't work in practice. There is a history to an English accent where you know it, it has this sort of and it's, it's sort of on this, stage English as well. It's yeah. stagey. It's historical and yeah. kind of it doesn't jump out at you. And you know it's kind of the baseline of accents. Uh, in the end, I don't know. This film didn't offend me the way I thought it would. Uh, it's you know what? High praise. What? <laughs> yeah, faintest. Look. In the end, it's mercifully brief. Yeah. <laughs> Man, you don't understand the value. <laughs> That's a poster quote. Mercifully brief, Paul Nelson. 
Paul <laughs> quotes left and right. I'm like Peter Travers over here. Yeah. Mercifully brief. I mean, the value of a 99-minute mega-budget film should not be understated in today's climate where we get 150-minute Michael Bay films served to us every few uh, years. Yeah. The other big, epic, special effectsy film, John Carter. I love John Carter. I love, 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 I love, love, love John Carter. Um, and, I, and I know that I, I guess, um, you know what? I, I was about to say I know I'm in the minority, but that movie broke box office records everywhere but the States, where it was obviously a disaster. Um, I think John Carter uh, is a mess in a lot of ways. Like, there's a lot of, and I didn't really realise this, and you know that, like, immediately after you see a film, you're like, I'm, you know, I'm on a high from the film, and then a, a week or two later, you start thinking about it, it's like, yeah, that didn't quite add up. Mm. Uh, it is, it, it is a mix of a lot of weird elements that don't sit next next to each other very well. And the editor part of me would want to cut out a lot of things and, and smooth it over, but I love how strange that film is. I love how they mix. Uh, humour into it. I love the jokes. I love the physical humour. But above everything, I love the um, the way that it's a really complete world. And I think the key to great sci-fi and fantasy is is about the cosmos. When you leave the cinema, you're still thinking about what's going on in the rest of that world. And one of the things I most enjoyed about John Carter is you get dumped in this land of Basum that has kind of warring cultures and uh, and different mythologies and histories and this amazing conspiracy that links all the worlds together. And I loved that I could get lost in that, and I really enjoyed that. And and I, it suffers for the fact that those original novels, the Edgar Rice Burroughs novels, are the things that inspired your Star Wars, your Avatars. But I, I, I really genuinely enjoy it. And I will, even though it's been a financial disaster and lots of people have come off very badly, and uh, Andrew Stanton and Walt Disney, who are apparently in the rate of $200 million, I will defend it because I had a really good time when I saw that film. I can only assume we're going to leave it there. You have no rebuttal, Paul? Uh, yeah, I, I'm starting to think maybe I saw a different print to a lot of these people. <laughs> My God, this film just felt horrendously misconceived from three minutes in, from that baffling beginning where we've got the battle between people we don't know about nor care about, and then, and then we're thrown into Taylor Kitsch's jaw-droppingly awful performance. I don't, I don't know why more hasn't been made of this. Why is he speaking like he needs a bat suit but doesn't have one? I'm John Carter of Virginia. That Virginia. voice. Virginia. <laughs> Virginia. <laughs> Virginia. You sounded like an extra from Showgirls. Then I, I just. <laughs> I just thought just what mum always dreamed that I would become. <laughs> Every choice in this film felt like it was filtered through Lucasfilm. Like I just it felt so generic and compromised but artificial. It's all these wonderful worlds just looked like things to be rendered. Um it was so flat and so boring and it's and once you get to that point, all the gibberish and all of the... Ra- it just all begins to add up and weigh the thing down as it lumbers from flat set piece to flat set piece. I like how they keep calling the uh, Deja character... Deja yeah, um, Professor, every, to <laughs> remind us that she's smart, despite... Um, being dressed like a stripper, which is okay because I kind of wanted that. I wanted more of that. I wanted this to be a kind of wacky, uh, not wacky, but like pure, pulpy Frank Frazetta poster. You want it to look like the covers of the... The John Carter books. Yeah, yeah which are I want amazing. it to be sexy and weird and exotic. And in the end, I just got... I felt like I was watching a Star Wars prequel. 
that you mentioned before, John, that, uh, Mark, that John Carter was... I will answer to either. It's, <laughs> it's all this John You know, Carter obviously business. I have his body, so I, I understand <laughs> why you got confused. Call, <laughs> call him Sidney. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, the thing is, as you said, John Carter has influenced everything, literally, of, of, of the last hundred years. It has literally influenced Avatar, Star Wars, even Superman. Yeah, for sure. The problem is the film doesn't take that into account. Exactly. It yes. has to break be out fresh. Of yeah. And it does nothing to be fresh. And also the name. Yeah. Like John Carter is the least most evocative name for anything anywhere. Yeah. 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 I mean, I mean the, the, the of Mars reveal is kind of nice. That's nice. Nice. But, name. yeah, is it worth the title of the film just disappearing into nothingness? I just, like, I don't know why you couldn't have just called it Barsoom or, you know, or mm. something like... Something with a John sense Carter of, of Earth or something. John Carter of Earth. Well, John, at least that would have been accurate. Yeah. John Carter of Virginia, however. <laughs> Virginia. <laughs> With the release of John Carter and Wrath of the Titans, uh, it's called into question what really proves epic in today's cinema. Because now we have computer-generated imagery and we can pretty much create anything on demand, it's almost got this feeling that we've seen everything before. Everything feels kind of artificial and generic and it's obvious that it's created inside of a computer and we've lost a bit of the romance of those great epics of the 50s and 60s like Ben-Hur and Cleopatra where everything was built on set and, you know, all the people were actually there and the buildings are really 50 feet tall even though they're facades. And How does a film distinguish itself as being truly epic? How do we, how do we portray scale believably these days? Yeah, you know what? A lot of it does seem to come down to physical sets for me because... I watched the, um, the, the, I can't believe I'm admitting this. I went to go see the, the re-release, 3D release of uh, Titanic. And one of the things that is striking, apart from the fact that it's a really long film about running water, which is a problem when you have a bladder, uh, <laughs> is that they, there's a lot of real set work. And there is something about the, the gravity of that and the, the, the physics of that that are very, very, very hard to replicate. And mm. it is much to do, when you're watching films like John Carter and, and, uh, and Wrath of the Titans, it has as much to do with your perception as it is what's going on the screen. And if you're sitting back going, and you're back in your mind, you know that it is, um, it is a, you know, mostly computer generated, you know, the grade's a little bit too clean and the, the balance of light's a little bit too clean and you can feel the pixels. And I think, mm. I think that there is something to be said for a little bit of that dirt, a little bit of that messiness of a real set where um, things aren't quite perfect, that you can feel the, the, the gravity of things yeah. ahead. And I, it's, it's really simple things. CGI has become so prevalent that there's really nothing we can't do to a certain level of photorealism. At, at this point, we're just refining it. But TV commercials do massive things with CGI. It's just part of our everyday culture. I think a lot of it, scale and epicness, actually comes down to time. And I got this feeling watching Gladiator and Troy, both of which are going for that massive epic thing, but both of which take place in a surprisingly short amount of time. Gladiator doesn't take place... How long is Gladiator? I, I can't remember. It's been so many years since I've seen it, but it certainly isn't the, it took me 10 years to get back to this spot. Right. So like, you're not talking about the film's running time. You're talking about the, the span of time that the film's span of time, story yeah. covers. Oh, and when, right. you know, if Troy had actually taken place over the seven years that the actual war did, rather than the seven days that the film compressed it <laughs> into, seriously, it would have felt like there was more, it was more weighty, it was mm. more epic. And I think they discount periods of time way too much. When you watch something like... You know, Lawrence of Arabia, it feels epic. Or well, The Godfather. 
Or The Godfather. But what about Lord of the Rings? I mean, Lord of the Rings has um, has a fair bit of time compression that goes on within it. But it's still, I mean, actually, let me ask you this. If you were asked, how long would you say from beginning to end a period of time that Lord of the Rings actually takes place over? Well, that's that's an interesting one because, in, of course, in the book, it's a year. Oh, right. And yeah, But there's nothing in the film that discounts that. They sort of... Yeah, I think they try to have their cake and eat it too a yeah, but bit you, with that. But the thing is, you wouldn't say... I mean, I don't think anyone here would say that Lord of the Rings is anything short of an epic film. Yeah, like, no, of course. But you could say... Yeah, yeah no, that's, that's I mean, a fair Yeah, point. again, but it feels like a journey, doesn't it? It yeah. doesn't just feel like a hero, like just your regular hero's mm. journey. It feels like a journey of... Every stage many feels like a struggle. of... Yeah. It's of also about the Lands way- and times and... Yeah, it yeah. has enormous mm. scope. It's also about the weight of the the, the stakes. Mm. Like, I mean, the example I guess I'm going to go with is um, uh, the Bat the, the the recent Batman movies, Batman Begins, uh, Dark Knight Rises, which again, you know, they you would be hard pressed to argue that it it doesn't feel epic in its mm. scope, and uh, that to some extent has to do with I think the IMAX factor and just the weight. There's so much weight that, that hangs over that film. But yeah. it's all, they've also got very um, – they've used this arena of, of Gotham as a way of talking about very big kind of ephemeral ideas about justice uh, and heroism and, and what is right. And those kinds of very big ideas, if articulated well on a massive scale, can can still give you that, that sense of the epic as well. Yeah. Well, that's funny you should mention that because one of the uh, – I was using the new Avengers trailer, the most recent Avengers trailer – as sort of an example of this, the bit there's a lot of really cool stuff in this. There's a lot of big CGI stuff, but the thing that gives me the biggest chills is when I think it's Loki standing in front of a crowd of humans, huge crowd of humans, just getting down onto their knees, like bowing bow. before him, and they just look so downcast, like they've given up hope. That's the bit of the trailer that gives me chills because suddenly I feel like something big is at stake. Not that, not that somebody's going to conquer the world, but that they he's going to strip everyone of hope. But ultimately, I, I, I feel that scale, you know, we've got to get away from the idea that scale is an epicness. It's just physicality. Big, yeah, yeah. It's, not, it's not just a big shot. It's not just a wide shot. It's, it's not just lots of, it, lots of people or it's not just a big expanse of a, you know, a large set. It's also all thematic. These other, yeah, yeah, thematic, it's, exactly. Yeah. It's got big emotional. Ideas, big emotions. Yep, time, it's funny, all heat, of these other factors. Heat is an epic. Yeah. Yeah, and it's kind of because it feels like the world's biggest ultimate cops and robbers movie. Mm. I think that also with and, Heat, and though, there's also a lot of emotional weight going on there. It's also about the size of the cast as well, mm. because Heat in particular, and and I think the same argument as it works with Lord of the Rings. That um, when you have lots of different characters from different places trying to survive a city, mm. which is what kind of what Heat is about. It's about you know whether these people can survive LA. That gives you a sense of of, of scope as whether the group survive now. Can, now, can you make, and here, here's the question, can you make an epic about suburbia? Magnolia. I was there it just is. about to there say that. There it is. There yeah. it is. You beat me by a second. Yeah. 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 In every way. Like, well, we've just, like solved, we've just won it film. We'll be back in 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mark, tell us, whom have you picked for your... Hell is for Hyphenates Filmmaker of the Month. Michael Bay. Sorry. What? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. What I is David, the sting? I picked David Fincher because, uh, as Paul 
perfectly put it before we started recording. He is, of course, the Prince of Darkness, and I worship at the feet of Satan. (laughs) (laughs) As do we all. My Hillsong mother heard that. She's crying right now. Big impact on you? Um, Yes, and it's hard to place it because, again, his films are so very different. I mean, obviously for me, the the iconic Fincher film is always going to be Fight Club, and and, and I think Fight Club speaks very, very well to guys of a certain age as Mm. well, Um, Mm. and... Okay, so I'm 26. Masculinity is actually not an area that got covered in a lot of my formative, you know, film-watching youth. We're talking Disney movies and musicals and 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 nerdy Star Trek things. The notion of masculinity that really, um, that really earthy, angry, violent masculinity never really broached in, mm. in a lot of my kind of upbringing of things that I watch. And, of course, when you watch Fight Club, it is the thing that seeds out of every poor man, mm. manhood, this uh, manhood that's ill-defined, manhood that has never been able to come out before manhood come out. That was Freudian. Wow. Um, you know, but, but that, those are the things that really, that was, that was it, it hits you like mm. uh, Brad Pitt punching something pretty. You know, you, mm. there was the thing that it, it took me by storm and I had, and I, I've never looked at film the other way. And, of course, then there was his visual language and uh, I was a failed graphic designer and suddenly I was like, <laughs> oh, my God, he's taken everything I love about design and put it in film because he, he, he showed total... Um, and, again, it's that coming from advertising, coming from music videos thing where um, being willing to break kind of rules about the amount of information you put, you put on a screen and being very clever about borrowing from advertising language and borrowing from um, music video language and applying it so beautifully to put you in... Not just a character's headspace, but an idea as well. And I think it was one of those really breakout moments. But that's just about Fight Club for me. Um, in terms of the impact he's had on me, it's about his willingness to try new visual techniques. Mm. And they don't always work. And, and, and one of the things I'm sure we're going to cover across this is a number of elements of, of, of David Fincher films don't necessarily work. And that's okay because what I like is that he's always trying something a mm. bit new. And you have to admit, looking across his films... Some of them you'll like, some of them you won't, but he always tries something new and something a bit different with everyone in his films. And that sense of adventure is sorely lacking, I think, in a lot of you know, a lot of filmmakers in general, you know, big or small, but to be doing it on, you know, on a, bo- on a Hollywood scale, I was about to say Bollywood scale, how <laughs> good would a David Fincher Bollywood movie be? Um, to do it on a Hollywood scale is, is, a really, is a really interesting thing. And I think he, I, I, I gravitate to his films because I want to see what he does next. Mm. So this guy was plucked from, from, you know, incredibly successful music videos. Well, there was a point where he was arguably the best music video director, if not the world, mm. definitely in America. Well, uh, Madonna certainly thought so. <laughs> well, yeah. And there was a point where I think it was the 1990 MTV Awards where three of the four nominated films for best video were directed by him. It was the Fincher, it was the Fincher Awards that yeah. year. <laughs> but there are, there are the linking things, which is, I, I guess you'd first have to start with darkness. He's, yeah. uh, he's one, very famous for saying that he thought American films were far too bright and he's on a one-man mission to darken, <laughs> to darken them. And he said it around about the time of, um, of, of, of Panic Room. He's on a one-man mission to darken American cinema, which is such a great phrase. I love it. His first feature film in 92 was almost... It's almost the worst thing you can do to a young filmmaker saying, hey, that first film in this series, it redefined the genre. The second film was another redefining film. Good luck with the third. Yeah. And so he's, you know, he's brought in to make Alien 3. He, he had a bad experience on it. It had a tough reception. But 
it's it's quite solid. The film itself is, I think, the ideas. Absolutely. There are ideas there are quite solid. If you're taking like the most iconic female action hero of all time and then putting her on a planet filled with men, I think there's a great opportunity there, even if it doesn't come through. <laughs> but in terms of what mm. Fincher did, arguably the two most iconic images from the Alien series came from him. The shaving of the hair. No, no, no. I would Ripley say Ripley diving into the fire and the crossbows. That, that's yeah, yeah. yeah. The, diving into the fire, I think, is a big one. But her as the you know cowering from the, oh, the, the mouth face to that face. comes in and gets. Oh, I would yeah, argue course, right. that that is. I don't think it's obviously it's not the best film or moment from the series. Clearly, that's Alien Resurrection. Yeah, no, <laughs> duh. No, but Fincher is responsible for what I think is the most uh, memorable moment image from the series. I think you're on a. I think you're on a good point here, which is. Fincher was hired after Fox worked with Vincent Ward for a year and then sort of threw out his idea and brought in Fincher without a script. And Fincher was a 29-year-old gun music video director who'd never directed a feature. And I think in the end, Fincher's not a writer and he was having to try and write pages and eventually the producers wrote the script Mm. and handed him pages on the day. I think the iconic images thing is interesting because I think Fincher asserted himself in the only way he knew how, which was with the imagery. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing that comes through with this film. The story is all over the place. It doesn't work. But visually, it's compelling. It's not just about the visuals, though. I mean, I agree with you. Mm. The iconic images are iconic. But it's also about... His ability to create a sense of dread in that film is really, really clear. There There are large sequences of that film where the dread is... Um, the dread is so palpable it weighs down on you and that is to me at the very heart of an Aliens film you know the, mm. what I love about the Aliens quadrilogy I'm, I'm assuming we're not including the Aliens V you no, know no, H&R yeah. Puff and stuff um, <laughs> but the key the one thing that does follow the Aliens movies across is the weight the sense of dread, not knowing what's coming. And it manifests in very different ways across mm. the films. And he, he really brought his own unique form of dread. And I mean, one thing I, I, I should be said about Aliens 3 is some of the performances that he pulled out of those actors, Charles Dance in particular, mm-hmm. um, is, has never been more terrifying. Absolutely never been more terrifying. But then, he, then the script does the thing. Yeah, Charles yeah, Dan, yeah, it's yeah. like... I, but, but I think we all acknowledge that this, the script yeah. is not was not really within his purview. And, of course, if you watch the DVDs, yeah. he refused to be involved mm. in any way. Which I think is actually a bit sad because the film is nowhere near as bad as it could have but been. But you can way, tell from the, the, the archive footage from the time, every shot of Fincher... Scowling man. Or pained or he looks mm. like he's got a stomach upset yeah, for the entire yeah, for sure. film in every But even shot. throughout that, once you extract his contribution from the film it's actually quite impressive what he did yeah and yeah look i think his use of visual visual sound and as you say that sense of dread and that and it even it it's very much him visually yeah and the thing is he could have been you know the pitoff of his generation yeah. the guy that you know really famous for making uh you know great effects uh makes a franchise film and pitoff's case was catwoman uh, and and then he's never heard of again. Yeah. He could have been that, and instead he didn't. And he turned around with probably one of the more iconic films uh, of the 90s uh, in the form of Seven. Seven, which is, I think, hands down one of the finest films ever made. I have no problem saying that. I think Ditto. it's extraordinary on every possible level. And I think just in terms of Fincher, it really shows that he's not just a genius with aesthetics, but emotion as well. 
I think Seven, you could, it's easy to retroactively frame things, hmm. but this was a guy who had such an awful experience on Alien 3, he considered never making a feature film again. He's been quoted as saying, I'd rather have colon cancer than look at another feature film script. And he was like that for a year and a half after, after Alien 3. And then Seven and the game got handed to him at about the same time. Hmm. And he was originally meant to make the game first, he made Seven first. But Seven feels like a film made by a guy who's got a lot to prove mm. and everything about the thing that struck me about seven even when i first saw it as a as a 20 year old and the film just blew my head off because it was the one of the first films i'd seen where every single element was working to create a world from the the muddy you know dark muddy camera work to the to- color tones to the slightly muted soundtrack to the constant mm. pouring rain to the immense detail in the set design and you know john doe's handbooks and mm. the opening credits to unsettle you like redefined every- opening credits for for films everywhere <laughs> hell yeah it brought back a style of opening credits that we haven't seen since salt bass mm. like suddenly they're an art form again yeah and and that's the, and everything about every it was it was one of the first films where I, where I suddenly became keenly aware in a good way of every aspect of the production design creating a, 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 a tactile world that it, it's just... funny for for a guy who's known so much for his um his visuals the standout thing for me in seven has always been the sound mm. uh, and the way he would you know little things like the way that the train goes past in their apartment and he he constantly uses sound uh, as an irritant mm. he's constantly using it to kind of make you uncomfortable to play uh, to to put you on edge at, at all points and little things like that to me really say is a guy who's really, who, you know, it's common criticism now as, as it is then that you come from music videos, you're only good with visuals uh, and rhythm. But he really understood every element of making that yes. thing come to play. Mm. Yep. And he's, he's a terrific director of actors too. Yeah. And actors like working with him. The scene with Paltrow in the diner breaks me every time. That's, yeah, it's great. Oh. Seven is a masterwork as far as I'm concerned and it's the first of... of few masterworks from this particular director and redefine the serial killer genre um, in okay. terms and mm. horror films as well for the next for the, everything has come since You're like you think saw hostel all this sort of stuff takes its mm. visual the visual griminess. language is entirely direct you can draw a direct line from, to seven. From seven exactly but then he did make the game two years later 97 which is I think still a good film. It I still think holds this up. film gets a bad rap. I, it does a bit. I really like this film, and I, I mean, for one, it's gorgeous to look at. Mm. It's, but I think more than any other film, even Fight Club, I think it shows off Finch's sense of humour. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. And thinking about the, the lineage of, of, of movies, you don't get Inception without things like the game, like that mm. that sense of the world is conspiring against you. Uh, that the sense of conf- the, the sense of confusion, and again bringing dread into the mix, but mixing it with that that very cheeky sense of humour, yeah. and you know showing us that yes, Sean Penn was actually capable of a sense of humour. Who knew? Mm-hmm. <laughs> who knew I asked but it is really stylish. I mean, oh, enormous. No matter what, he keeps. I mean, he he continues with innovation and 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 style, and. When he goes to fight, uh, like what you were saying about Fight Club beforehand, it is generation defining. I think our generation mm. is pretty much defined by that and possibly high fidelity. Mm. It's a crazy year. The cynicism of Fight Club is palpable. Uh, I, and, I, and I love it. Can I tell you? I, I, I disagree. I actually think it's one of the most optimistic films. 
hidden inside a, a, a veneer of cynicism. Mm, yeah, no, I'll give you that. But it's... It, the, so, no, I don't... Uh, okay, it is optimistic. It is absolutely optimistic. But I don't think the cynicism is a veneer. Mm. I think the cynicism is, is core to the personality of the film. And the, the personality of the film is... The way it sees the world is 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 angry and and a little bit fucked off, mm. and that and and the way it's humour right right down from looking at his room as a glorified IKEA catalogue, it's 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 mocking yeah. and it's mean. Okay. But behind yeah. that is an incredible earnestness. Tyler Durden, I think, is an incredibly earnest, almost optimistic character. Yeah, totally. um, like. I would liken him to being kind of evangelical in his yeah, own yeah. way. But the, the personality of the film, I think, is, is still dripping with, with sarcasm. And I love that. I, mm. I don't think that as a negative. I mean, often when we call films cynical, we yeah. mean it in a, like, it's cynically taking advantage of the audience. I think that's not the application No, I think here. Fight Club very much is trying to make a connection with its audience. Mm. Mm. But it comes at a point, too, which is really interesting, that, you know, we're in a post feminism post sexual revolution post 1980s post sort of thing and the and the alpha male is is a dated concept and it does hit it hit the male psyche at a point it hit at a point when males are very con- confused about what it means to be a modern male and i don't think this film defines it as people chose to kind of run with i think the film reflects the confusion mm. yes and yeah. that the modern male is sort of wrapped up in this weird kind of mix of uh, consumerism and machismo and fashion. Basically, and if you saw the film and then thought, oh, I should start a fight club, then you miss the point of the film, oh. which is kind of the opposite of oh, that message. Oh, so should I... No, I to cancel it. No, no, Sorry. seriously, stop promoting your Facebook. Sorry, I'm just going to get on Facebook and just... Okay. But, like, I don't know how you can watch that film and get, I should start a fight club out of it. It's <laughs> so many people did. Ridiculous. But, yeah, it's very much... it's. I've heard this film often described as our generation's clockwork orange, and I think that that's mm. a pretty apt yeah, description. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. It's, again, it's weighty, it's innovative, but it feels incredibly raw as well, mm. which a lot of Fincher stuff feels incredibly polished. And this film has is designed to such a meticulous degree. So it's kind of a minor miracle that it feels as raw and unhinged and rough and ready as it does. Mm. Uh, I also feel this is a very defining 90s film as well. Like, oh, I, yeah, absolutely. Like, there's something about the personality of it. I, I can see it coming out of the same pop culture environment that gives us The Simpsons and The X-Files and things like those really iconic 90s pop culture artefacts. That, mm. that, train spotting. Train spotting, yeah. Those, pop fiction. And, they're, yeah. they're kind mm. of... Um, Irony, sarcasm, and and darkness and cleverness were all very, very high on mm. the list of attributes that were to be valued, and you can see it reverberating through that that whole uh, palette of, of of the film. Yeah, and Fight Club's almost like yeah, it, it was all kind of leading to that point, and Fight Club's where it sort of <laughs> blows up in a frisson of uh, and then the pixie stuff playing in the background. The thing I like about it too is the fact that he got so screwed over by Twentieth Century Fox on Alien Three. And didn't you know want to make a feature film, and then reluctantly went to Fox to make Fight Club, and ended up screwing 20th Century Fox by making the most anti-capitalist <laughs> yeah. blockbuster that lost the money at the cinemas originally, and pissed Rupert Murdoch off personally. And you know, Hooray. people always, people always say, <laughs> "What a way know, to even the legend." People always love to whinge that you know Hollywood isn't capable of making really seditious films, and I always just point them straight back to this film, going, mm. "This was News Limited <laughs> that made this film." Shut your face. And News Limited, who also makes 
The, the Simpsons, Simpsons yeah. and the X-Files. In fact, News Limited were behind some of the, the most seditious uh, popular <laughs> culture of the last 20 years. God bless him. So in 2002, he goes to Panic Room, which, which feels very much like the game to me in that in terms of Finch's filmography, it's not really one of the highlights, and yet it's so solid and such a great, tense, almost Hitchcockian thriller. Yeah. You know what it is? It's the fact that with Fight Club, he had uh, this really rich material. It was thematically rich as well, whereas yeah. Panic Room is a very uh, thematically kind of void uh, in the sense that it feels like it's it's just uh, it, it's it's a heist movie. But it's that, I think, is a misreading of it that a lot of people, myself included, made when it first came out because I think what's so strong about that film is uh, it's so stripped back and it's so raw about survival and there's, there's no other big overarching statement that sits around it. It is just the, the pure tension of bringing you right into the moment, the energy of being right in the moment, the terror of being right in the moment of being stuck mm. in that panic room with Jodie Foster. And one of my favourite things about that movie was originally... It was supposed to be Nicole Kidman, and she was supposed to be a trophy wife who's stuck up here with this kid, stepkid who's not hers. Mm. But she broke her ribs on Moulin Rouge, and right. so she couldn't complete the role. I would love so desperately to see what that footage looks like because it's a it's a, such a fascinating, interesting p- possibility mm. for, for Nicole Kidman for that story because mm. yeah. the idea of a trophy wife overcoming uh, mm. would have been really powerful. Instead, you have Jodie Foster who kind of is... Um, she's kind of shorthand for strong woman, like yeah. kind of like in the same yeah. way Sigourney Weaver is shorthand for yeah. strong woman, and that's great. I, I love Jodie Foster and, and Sigourney Weaver for those reasons, but... I would have been really interested to see a character, uh, somebody who, who screams frail. And, yeah, you know, inverts that Exactly, a bit. yeah. That's an interesting point because Kidman has a cameo on the phone yes. as the trophy wife. As the new wife. That ju- so oh, she's still playing wow. that same role. She's still the stepmother and the trophy wife. Yeah. So she essentially maintained that role. I did not know that. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah, just on the phone. flip the characters. That's <laughs> fascinating. You know, Finch's technical innovation is isn't just flashy for the sake of flashiness. He, he's doing some incredibly flashy stuff, but it's all to show us the physicality of this house. Well, that's the thing. That, that opening sequence, which is all cut into one shot, where the robbers mm. arrive in the house, when they, the girls go to sleep and then the robbers arrive in the house and the whole thing is taking us throughout. The, the scale, entire... the physics, mm. yeah, it's uh, setting it the all mechanics, up. Yeah. how it all locks together. You understand the landscape you're playing in from the get-go. Yeah. You have a really clear sense of... You know what the game is, where uh, in, and how it all fits together. It's like a jigsaw puzzle, mm. and I, you know, like I kind of watch shots like that, and I think, why don't all films do this? Because yeah, yeah people whinge about it being um, showy, and I'm like, no, 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 it's incredibly clear what he's done. He's used the techniques at his disposal to give you a very, very, very clear sense of where this world is about to take place, and and once you have that in your head, you will understand what's going yeah. on. Yeah, and this strikes me as the film that this is the, a lot of people prescribe this to other films that don't deserve it. I've heard it said about What Lies Beneath, which is ridiculous, mm. which is this is the kind of film Hitchcock would make if yes. Hitchcock were alive now and had access to this technology. Panic Room is the movie that would come from the Hitchcock of Rope. Exactly. You know, yeah. uh, of, of, of the Hitchcock of Rear Window. In fact, in fact, there is a number of like references to Rear Window in terms of the yes. flashing yes. lights yeah. and, and looking through the, the windows and you know, stuff like that. So there's, there's very clear lines of sight from, from Rear Window mm. and Rope. To, uh, to Panic Room. I think one of the reasons Fincher is so brilliant comes five years later, 2007's Zodiac. Now, you've got a serial killer script or idea, and you think, who should direct it? 
and executives tend to think, oh, David Fincher, because he did a serial killer film so successfully before. Now, the thing is, we've already seen Fincher's serial killer film. We already know what... The, so that's actually quite unimaginative to go to him. But Fincher is so good that he made a completely different type of film. You could not have gotten further away from it, could you? Exactly. Seven is like this this horrible opera. I mean, great, but horrible, like like disturbing opera. And Zodiac is like all the president's men. Yeah. So, well, well, well that's, that's its main influence. Yeah. And they're so different stylistically, and they feel like such different films, and, uh, but they both work so well. And I love that it's a story about obsession. Mm. And in this, the, case, the Zodiac case is like a virus that mm. people catch. Mm. So like once somebody starts looking into it, they've got the virus, and they're going to lose something to it. They're going to lose their family, or they're going to lose their sanity, or they're going to lose their job, or they're going to lose their, mm. you know. And I find that really compelling. I don't. I have not seen another procedural that's taken that kind of a uh, of an approach. Zodiac is probably the movie of David Fincher's that I struggle with the most because it does end up being quite open ended. Like it kind of it, it's I, I to take the infection analogy i think of it more as like a zodiac itself is like a plague it's spread mm. from one person and it leaves it leaves them for dead it's spread from another person it leaves them for dead and in the end you have this wasteland of lives at the mm. end of it exactly and, and at the time it's it's like it's it's like emotionally depleting to watch because it just leaves all these people in its wake you know not just dead bodies but mm. also like the emotional lives of the character and i kind of walked out of it and went <sighs> Somebody hug me! Um, but, I mean, that, that's not to say it's a bad film. It's not, obviously. But the way it leaves you completely and utterly devastated at the end is, is really quite... Um, it's quite awful in a way. <laughs> I, but, um, but you can't deny that it's not effective and you can't deny that it was not by design as well. Yeah. Also, his use of effects to create historical detail, like the effects work on this film is mind-boggling and you notice none, none of it. None of it. It's entire, it feels incredibly seamless. And I think that's, this is a big turning point for him because uh, you know, there's, a, there's a, a, a wonderful showiness. I, I love his showiness of the earlier films. And mm. Zodiac was really the movie where you know he's applying all of the same level of, of detail and skill but it's all there to drive you into that time and place. Yep. Whereas in Flight Club, it's about driving you into the headspace, into the idea. In Panic Room, it's about driving you into the, you know, the physical space, the, the mechanics of it. So he's, you know, he really knows when to apply it and when not to. And this is where you see the difference between him and other directors that come from music videos or special effects. Which are just like, and now we do a big flyover shot for no yeah. good reason. Because we can. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> Yeah, he's so, and that's where I, I think he's foremost among music video directors. It never feels like Flash. Yeah, it never feels like I'm just trying to impress you. It's like he just has a genuinely stylish visual worldview, and everything is about in the service of telling the story and creating a world. And in 2008, Curious Case of Benjamin Button, a film I have to say I really loved the first time around, and rewatching it recently, I can't help but wonder why. <laughs> um, uh, I really don't see I've, I've almost done a 180 on this film um, a lot of my problems stem from the script I think you know it, it's, it's a really interesting concept and this isn't the most interesting story that can be told from it but you zoom out or zoom in I'm not sure which, and extract Finch's work and it's fantastic yeah. it's, I mean not just technical God I'm going to say technical innovation so many times today but it, it's the sense of mood and style he creates when moving through these time periods yeah. it is a deeply and i don't ever say this but it is a deeply romantic film it reverberates with um a, a sort of 
romantic love that is very, very rare in mm. films these days. It's a, it's a love that is, um, it, it that it kind of it's filled with yearning and it's filled with pain and it's filled with tenderness and it's filled with all these things that you absolutely don't associate with a man that brought you Seven and Fight Club. I think the first half, oh well, the first hour of this film, which is all about. Buttons' adventures around the world and and growing up in that in the house and everything all work beautifully. It's such a wondrous piece. And again, it's it's Finch's command of visuals, command of mood, command of of um, special effects. All of those things combined. I think once the Kate Blanchett character comes into the film and starts becoming a romance and starts becoming Forrest Gump, then the film just crumbles under that weight. And again, I'm like you, Lee. I think Finch's technical work on it is superior, but I think the script just destroys it. Paul, you have a theory about, well, not so much a theory, but something you noticed uh, mm. watching all of these, and I think you're absolutely right. What does Fincher have in common with Star Trek? Every even-numbered Fincher film could extremely plausibly be argued to be a modern masterpiece. Hold on, so, so which films are we talking about here? We've seven. Seven, yep. Fight Club. Fight Club. Zodiac. Zodiac. And The Social Network. You know, oh Tony. my god, it works! Yes. Oh my god, it works! Yeah, all considered mind plausibly yeah. as modern masterpieces. Yes. That's amazing. So the next one is going to be, be, gonna be amazing. But Social Network. I mean, I'm 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 one of the biggest Aaron Sorkin fans in the world. I think he's amazing, and Finch is one of my favorite directors. But I was really worried when I heard they were working together because it seems like such an incongruous mix, doesn't it? Yeah, like two mm. auteurs with such wildly different visions. So, so much of what we associate with Aaron Sorkin's writing has been actually driven by the visual style of directing of The West Wing, which was very mm. manic, walking and talking, everything going everywhere. But what we discovered with The Social Network was Fincher had a very even hand about this movie. There's not a lot of movement in, in, mm. the, in the way he directs dialogue scenes. He stays back and he lets the crispness, the sharpness, the angry, the, the funny, mm. the, the viciousness of his words cut straight through they do all the sharp they do all the sharp work mm. he lets the words do that and and in a way it, that's a real mark of a, a great director knowing when to stay back knowing when to let those moments and of course then there's the other bits where he lets the visual style take over so for example the um the the rowing the, scene, the yeah. regatting regatta scene which is just most beautifully constructed scene in terms of painting the picture of the the kind of the gentry of, yeah. of the world you know the very rich people they go to the regatta and of course there's music playing and all you can think is they're like the mice playing in a in a <laughs> In a lab. Yeah. And it's shot in that style where it's, it's kind of it may, it makes it small. The, yeah. the, the, exactly. the tilt shift camera makes every, everything they do seem small and tiny. See, I think his style is all over this movie. And every, almost every Fincher film, no, I'm going to say every Fincher film, is marked by that kind of bronzed look. Oh, yeah, he's, he's that, slightly sepia tones everything. Yes, <laughs> and even the Columbia logos on his films, every Columbia logo is really sepia yeah. more than usual. There's times that are almost panic room-like in terms of very slow push-ins on characters. And there's that shadow to everything as well. Like, the thing that Fincher and the West Wing have in common is they're both lit like the Godfather. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's that very, very, you know, dark, almost from above type shadowy lighting. Um, and, yeah, so he's, I think his visual imprimatur is all over this. But Absolutely. it works in so beautifully. And as you say, Mark, he sit, sits back and lets Sorkin's mm. script do the talking. 
Well, he, he also, he must be a great navigator, I think, because you look at Panic Room and the way he navigates that house and shows you everything you need to know. He does that with Zodiac and with Social Network in that you've got all of these time periods, you've got different mm. lawsuits in the Social Network and there's all this stuff going on and lots of computer speak and he navigates it in such an amazing way. You never get lost in the Social Network. No. And it's a movie that by rights, I mean, it's got technobabble and it's got... You know, convoluted plot jumping and here and legal jumping there. jargon. Legal and jargon, and you never get like that. One of the things I do very much like about it's probably more of an Aaron Sorkin thing, I guess, is that he's more than happy to chuck big words at you. He's more than yeah. ch- happy to, to, to chuck big words at you and give you the tools to feel smart enough to follow it. But I think the other thing about the, the social network is the soundtrack is, is one of the most amazing standouts of this film because it's. It's dripping with sadness. Mm. You know, those opening... Like, it's... it's, I almost think it's going to go into the creep tune from the trailer. It always always sounds like the start of that. Well, I mean, the social network has had, seriously, the the best, some of the best trailers of the last five years. And that that trailer that they have with the creep soundtrack and the pictures of people playing on Facebook is, I think, one of the finest bits of filmmaking about Generation Y that's ever existed just in terms of the power of the internet and, and the power of Facebook in particular to Which, fold its way into our lives, to represent our lives. It's, yeah. it's really powerful, but that's, you know, that's but probably it's funny you say that though, because I, to me, social network is a Gen Y citizen cane. Yeah. Oh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm well on board it's, with that. It's a deep... So having nailed Gen X in panic, in, um, Fight Club. Club. He's, he's then now Gen, Gen Y, y. with social. He's network. made two of the most generation iconic generation films of our time. Mm. It's good lord, what's he going to do next? <laughs> well, I look forward to him making a great film about Bebo one day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny you say what happens next because Girl with the Dragon Tattoo remake in 2011. I. Want the Blu-ray for that opening credit sequence Isn't alone? It? Yeah, I mean it's. But it does overwhelm everything that comes after. What? What? The thing with the girl with the dragon tattoo is, a lot of people had read the book, a lot of people had seen the original version, and you know you're sitting down and you're watching a movie and you think, all right, so it's basically a shot-for-shot remake of the movie, and then within ten minutes, I'm like, there are so many similarities in location, and I know what's going to happen in the plot, and I don't care because he is a better filmmaker. Mm. He is just flat out a better filmmaker in every regard than the person who made the original film whose name I have conveniently forgotten. Um, I'll, I'll give you that because I'm not a fan of the story or the characters or really anything about it. It just doesn't do it for me. Uh, and I was really confused as to why he'd want to take this on and I'm still confused. But what he did was so much better and I found it much more coherent oh, yeah. and satisfying without really enjoying it. I still found it, I just found it superior. So, See, can I commit heresy? Yeah. I prefer the original. And it's interesting mm. that you said, what, what the hell is he going to do next? It's like, why this? It just feels like, it feels like an exhibition match. It feels <laughs> like a bunch of awesome, top-of-their-game actors and technicians playing a friendly. Mm. It's like, it's perfectly well shot. It's coherent. It, like, for such a long film, it doesn't feel long. Like, it moves really well. But as you said, Mark, we've seen it all before. Why do we care? Oh, and I, I quite like the story. But, it, yeah, it just feel, it feels like the best... It feels like Real Madrid playing a friendly. I happily acknowledge that it is not his best film. But saying it is not David Finch's best film still puts it miles ahead of most other people's <laughs> films. I'm sorry, it just does. And I think if I'm looking at it in relation to other films that came out in that year... Mm. Uh, it, it ranks very highly for me. If I rank it as other films that came out in his oeuvre, 
<clears throat> yep, that's good French. Um, <laughs> I think it's you know not one of his best, but I certainly still think it's an excellent film. I don't know. I look, I like it. I think it's like you say, it's a bad day. Like a bad David Fincher film is better than most films. Mm. I don't think is. I don't think drag, his girl with the dragon tattoo is by any measure bad. I just think it's solid, mm. and in a film, filmography that's mainly full of extraordinary works. I think it's a lot better than Alien 3 and Button, but I think it's a, f- a long way behind things like The Game and Panic Room. Next film will be a classic. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. If the, <laughs> no uh, no if, pressure. <laughs> if the average continues, the next one will be amazing. Thank you so much for joining us, Mark. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm, I'm sorry if I made no sense whatsoever. Like I said at the beginning, I've had two hour and a half hours sleep and I flew in on a plane at four o'clock in the, six o'clock in the morning. So I, I'm sorry if I didn't make any sense at all. You were great. Thank you. You were fantastic. And we'll see the rest of you next month. Please move your seat to the upright position and buy so. Thank you.